If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 248 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we speak with Blake Bowles, the founder and director of Unschool Adventures and the author of The Art of Self-Directed Learning, Better Than College, College Without High School, and most recently, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? You can probably already hear a theme there. Blake is someone who has been quite well known for questioning our traditional approaches to schooling. In fact, it's possible that you've seen, read, or heard him in venues ranging from the New York Times to the Christian Science Monitor to TEDx to NPR. Jeff, what can listeners expect to hear from Blake on Leading Learning? Well, in many ways, Blake is an unusual guest for us. His focus is more on learning as a child or young adult, whereas, of course, we focus on adult lifelong learning. But, of course, what happens in those earlier years of learning inevitably impacts what happens later. And also, the sort of questioning of the status quo that Blake continually engages in is really just the sort of behavior we'd like to encourage among leading learning listeners. And then finally, with the disruption created by the COVID-19 pandemic, the question Blake poses with the title of his newest book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School?, may resonate with many listeners in a way that it might not have previously. So in the interview, we dive into some of the key topics of the book. A particular area we focus on is self-directed learning, which is an area of deep interest that we certainly share with Blake and have discussed before on the podcast. And we also talk about the role of connection in learning, something he really emphasizes toward the end of the book, and which I think is completely applicable in the world of adult learning. And that's just scratching the surface. It's a wide-ranging, interesting, and provocative conversation that I think listeners will really enjoy. And what reflection questions did you come up with for this episode, Jeff? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find the reflection questions in the show notes available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 248. Well, I think what I would propose is maybe less of a reflection question and more of a challenge, a challenge to shift your mindset as radically as you can manage. Blake points out some clear shortcomings of our traditional approaches to elementary, secondary, and higher education and shows the value of very different approaches. So ask yourself, you know, what types of questions should we be raising about our traditional approach to adult lifelong learning? How might we radically rethink our approach? Well, I think to to borrow from Blake's book title, maybe why are we still sending our learners to continuing education might be a question to be asking. But of course, it's for you, dear listeners, to decide what question or questions you should be asking. So with that, let's roll the interview and see what kind of mindset shift this conversation with Blake Bowles produces. Hey there, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb, and I am very happy to be joined today by Blake Bowles. Blake is the founder and director of Unschool Adventures and the author of The Art of Self-Directed Learning, Better Than College, and College Without High School. He hosts the Off-Trail Learning Podcast. He speaks frequently, and he and his work have appeared in such venerable outlets as The New York Times, The Christian Science Monitor, Psychology Today, and USA Today. 
His newest book is Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? And that and its provocative title are going to be a major focus of our conversation today. But before we get to that, Blake, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. Well, I appreciate your reaching out. I've been, you know, interested in your work for so long. I can't, I can't actually remember how many years ago we connected, five or six, something like that. Um, but uh, I've loved following what you do, and you have just such an interesting background. You're, you are, to your credit, a, a very interesting person. So I'm going to ask you: Could you tell folks a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I've ended up working in the world of alternative education, but I was not alternatively educated myself. I went to California public schools, went straight into college. I was studying astrophysics at Berkeley, but that only lasted for about two years. I saw what actual research science uh, graduate students did, and I thought, that's not for me. I was thinking about becoming a high school science teacher, and that is when I stumbled into the rabbit hole of alternative education, self-directed learning, radical, democratic, free schools, homeschooling, and unschooling. And so I read a bunch of books, ended up designing my own major to study this stuff full-time. So I still graduated, but I think I had the least marketable degree ever issued by UC Berkeley in uh, alternative schooling and science education. And then I went to go work in the field of outdoor education for a few years and eventually started my travel company, Unschool Adventures. And that has been my little lab for taking teenagers who choose not to go to school on long international trips. And during that time, I've also written some books, as you mentioned, about how these young people go to college if they desire, although they don't have a traditional high school background, what they do if they choose not to go to college, and what this whole messy concept of self-directed learning looks like in the first place. Well, I, I love you. Maybe I'm trying to think if we've had anybody else on the show uh, who has an, an astrophysics background. That 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 in and of just, itself just is, two years, just, just two years. Well, the easy years. Yeah, well, a few days of astrophysics for me <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a challenge. So uh, love love that. Um, love love your focus on on self directed learning, and that you obviously you know have walked the walk, do still walk the walk when it comes to self directed learning. And I definitely want to talk about that, uh, that topic quite a bit. Um, now you, you've talked about you know, these sort of unconventional um, alternative forms of education, and we were having a little bit of uh, chat before we uh, hit the record button. You know, and I, I know I myself as, as a parent uh, wrestle with that. I'm, I'm sure we have many listeners who are parents or grandparents who, who probably wonder about the the conventional school system, particularly in this day and age. It, it somehow just feels you know less and less viable, less and less uh, on point. Um, and, and is that the best path for kids to take into the the future? And of course, in this most recent book of yours, that the, the title itself sort of uh, provokes that uh, that question. I mean, the, the the title is a question: Why are you still <laughs> sending your kids to school? So, tell us tell us more about that book. I mean, what are you covering there? Who, who is this aimed at? And, and, and what, you know, what, are you, what are you hoping to achieve by you know, putting that question in front of people? Mm. The book is for parents who have school-age kids who are clearly not thriving there. Mm. And I come at that from the angle of uh, boredom, engagement, and stress, which we can talk about later. But essentially, if you see your kid being kind of miserable or not engaged, highly bored or disaffected in school, I want to challenge the assumption that you have to keep sending them to school because that's the responsible thing to do as a parent. 
The book does not call for tearing down the public school system. It does not say that school doesn't work for anyone because it clearly does. There are some kids who are good fits and who are highly engaged in conventional schools, both public and private. And public schools serve very important uh, roles in our society for other reasons. And so this is, again, for that, that sliver of parents who see, wow, school really isn't working for my kid. I am open to the possibility of an alternative, but when people, when they think of alternatives, they think of homeschooling in the very traditional school at home sense, and they're not captivated by that. Or they think of maybe Montessori or Waldorf schools. And those schools I think can be great, especially for younger kids. But when they get into the middle school, high school range, they tend to look a lot like ritzy private schools and charge uh, similar tuition rates and not be that alternative anymore. And so this book champions the uh, growing, largely private, largely decentralized network of alternative schools like democratic free schools. Those might include Sudbury schools. There are these other things that are sometimes schools, but sometimes not like agile learning centers or liberated learner centers. And I also talk a lot about homeschooling, which is a big diverse movement. It's not the stereotype of homeschooling that I grew up with. Uh, and it's, it's changed a lot over the, just the past few decades. And I also talk about unschooling, which is the world that I have largely found myself in. And that is also a big, almost like Wild West, anything goes type of arena, but it holds a ton of potential for kids who are just not having it with conventional school. And can you talk about the difference between those a little bit homeschooling versus unschooling? Because I'm not, I'm not sure all listeners will be as fluent in that language as, as you obviously are. Sure. Homeschooling is, I, I think of it as a legal definition. In uh, the 90s is when homeschooling became legal in all 50 states of the U.S. It's also legal in all the provinces of Canada and in a number of other Western countries. And uh, homeschooling can mean many different things. There are families who practice school at home, following the regular curriculum, making sure their kids make steady progress, regularly assessing them. Uh, sometimes these families are religiously motivated, but that is that has fallen as that's no longer the number one reason reported to the National um, Center for Education Statistics. Uh, now there are other like secular reasons that most parents choose to homeschool. Uh, but then there are this a whole spectrum between conventional school at home and then the highly self-directed child-centered version of homeschooling, which is what unschooling is. In the purest sense, unschooling means not giving your kid any curriculum at all, not making any assumptions about milestones that they need to hit at certain ages. And that can be a very uncomfortable thing for parents because you can have an eight-year-old who has not yet learned to read. You can have a 17-year-old who doesn't seem ready to go to college if she so desires. And so there are these little cases that can be very unsettling. But on the other side of that, there are the kids who really take advantage of this higher level of freedom and responsibility. A lot of the teenagers I know start going to community college before their peers do. When they decide they're ready to go to college or begin their careers, they rapidly gain the skills and background knowledge they need to jump through the hoops. And now, you know, you've described this as being for, for parents, for families um, who are you know, potentially interested in these alternative forms, want to, you know, have know more about them, have a little more confidence in them. Um, I mean, I would, I would expand your, your market because as I was reading this, you know, as I have, I have uh, school age children, we're not homeschooling them. We've always kind of wrestled with that uh, homeschooling, even, even unschooling, but we, we haven't gone down that path. We're, we're probably not going to go down that path at this point, um, realistically, but 
I got a lot out of this book um, because I think it just it, it it makes you think about what the possibilities are. Maybe pull back and look at how conventional schooling is is going for your kid, and and whether you might you know be able to to, to try some things around the edges, or at the very at the very least, maybe just relax a little bit and, and help your help your kid relax a little bit and and uh, and, and live the experience and, and instead of living you know the the, the stress and, and and the boredom um, that we'll get to in a minute that are so often associated with conventional schooling have you have you gotten that kind of feedback from from people that uh, maybe they're not going to go this alternative path but they're but they're getting you know good lessons from this that, that apply uh, anyway in their lives well the book has not even been out a week yet, Jeff. And so my total feedback is limited, but I'm hoping to hear from more parents like that. And honestly, you know, in the beginning here, I'm preaching to the choir and my audience is people who are already familiar with these ideas, but I'm hoping that this will become the go-to book that you will hand to a parent of uh, a kid who is really not having it with school. And, and you say, listen, this is the gentle introduction to these ideas. It's non-dogmatic. It gives gives you a sense of possibilities. And also we, we hit related areas like the parenting research, like the topic of higher education, because all of those subjects are intertwined with the choice of taking an alternative path through K through 12. And you, you have already mentioned uh, earlier in, in, in this conversation, those three points of um, uh, boredom, stress, engagement. And uh, w- when I encountered those in the book and your, your discussion around them, one of the first the light bulbs that went off in my head was particularly around engagement because in the, in this whole world of adult um, professional development, continuing education, lifelong learning, one of the issues that comes up again and again is engagement. How, how do we create engaging experiences for our learners? Our learners aren't engaged. What, what do we do about it? And, uh, and it just made me realize, you know, this, this starts so early, you know, there's probably, there's probably habits or mindsets, behaviors that are carrying over from childhood. Can you, can you talk a bit more about kind of your diagnosis of those issues, engagement, boredom, stress? Where, where are we falling short in, in our schools uh, right, right now? Well, when we talk about engagement with adults, I, I do admit that, you know, to the extent that someone can be engaged with their work is, is limited by the, the kind of work available, by the economy. If everyone had to be a coal miner, it would be hard to say we want people to be so happy about going to their jobs every day. And so this is something that's changing as the, the field of work is changing also. Uh, with young people, I think that we are just way behind the curve. And of course, I'm not the first person to say that the school system is is antiquated and due for an update. But when people say, how do I know if school is working for my kid or not? I think that engagement is the number one metric to use. And you don't have to be a, a social scientist or something to to figure out whether your kid is engaged or not. Like, do they want to go to the place each day? If there's a snow day at school, is your kid happy or sad? Okay. If they're happy, that means they didn't really want to go. If they're sad, that means, yeah, they, they are engaged there to some extent. I think that summer camps are a great example of places where you have very high engagement levels among kids and fundamentally summer camps, kind of like extracurriculars, uh, they're always voluntary. And so to a large extent, school is not going to be an engaging place for kids because it's simply not voluntary. It's conscription. And so that's the large barrier right there. That's why I always you know, champion these alternatives where they give kids as much choice and autonomy as, as reasonable for their kind of 
you know, stage of development. And I think that engaged young people have a much higher chance of becoming engaged adults. It's pretty straightforward. Again, limited by the, you know, the economic opportunities available to them as adults. But I think if a young person has a chance to exercise their sense of intrinsic motivation, to feel a sense of control, to develop a sense of mastery, then they are much more likely to gravitate towards work as adults where they are more engaged. Yeah. And I mean, as you pointed out rightly, I mean, that makes all the difference. I think if you're, if you're engaged in work you love, then, you know, any learning that's sort of intrinsic to that work or that needs to be um, acquired to, to do that work better, you're going to, you're going to be much more motivated to do that. You will be engaged in doing that. You're probably going to feel a lot less stress. You're certainly going to feel a lot less boredom uh, on, on the job. Um, So, you know, building that foundation early on and, Another element of this that um, that you stress a lot, and you've written you know whole books on 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 this is is self directed learning, and you know you noted in in, in unschooling that's particularly a, a priority um, the 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 young learner's own self direction, but really you know throughout all the alternative forms of education, and really it should be a part of conventional and formal education as well, having that sense of, of self direction. How uh, how do you help to to uncover that? How do you help to cultivate that um, and and ensure, to the extent that you can, that 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 self direction is going to be there? You know, particularly if you're going to you know jump off and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do the unschooling thing. I mean, do you find that people just naturally are self directed if you can just find the the right direction for them to sort of point in, or does it take a little coaching? So I do think that it's a fairly natural drive. Um, I think you're, you'd be hard pressed to find a kid who is never motivated to do anything on their own, a com- complete sack of potatoes. I just don't think many of those kids exist out there. We have theorized them into existence. Uh, yes, it requires some coaching. Yes, it requires some support. Yes, it requires a certain level of privilege. Uh, kids who are going to become full-time self-directed learners do require a rich environment where they're surrounded by caring adults, both parental and non-parental, where they ideally have a good peer group. There's resources, you know, there's computers, musical instruments, books available. That's the ideal environment. And within such an environment, I think all a parent needs to do is let go of the reins. And specifically, an analogy that I like to use, which I borrow from another wonderful book called The Self-Driven Child, uh, is a parent needs to start thinking of herself more as a consultant to her kid instead of the boss or manager of her kid's education. So instead of being a micromanaging tiger mom or a helicopter parent, you can instead say, okay, kind of like a business consultant, I do have more expertise than my kid. You know, I am more experienced, but uh, I am going to offer my guidance to my kid. I'm going to give my opinions I will offer suggested resources. And if my kid decides to take my advice and roll with it, great. If they decide not to take my advice and they suffer or falter because of that, okay. You know, it's their business, so to speak, which is really just saying it's their life. It's not mine. And so there's a certain level of detachment that comes there. And I do think that that's easier to digest when you start you know, <laughs> dealing with adolescents, you know, budding adults than it is with younger kids. Uh, but it's the same principle. You just have to get out of the way and provide uh, a rich, loving environment for a kid in order to help them be self-directed. You know, and this, uh, this question occurs to me as I'm listening to you and I, I'll 
you know, say I'm heavily under the influence of getting towards the end of rereading uh, Democracy and Education right now, John Dewey's uh, great work. But it, but it made me um, wonder as you were speaking and, and just reflecting back on, the, on what we've discussed so far in, in this conversation. I mean, what do you feel the purpose of education is? The purpose of education or the purpose of school? Both. Let, let's, 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 you can start with whichever one you want and, and distinguish between <laughs> them. Sure. Well, I think education is a big thorny uh, thing to, to try to pin down. And so in education, I've heard some people define it as uh, whatever helps you lead an effective life. That's a bit too broad for my taste. Uh, My intellectual hero, John Taylor Gatto, who was the New York City award-winning school teacher who quit his job because he said he didn't want to make a living hurting kids anymore. And he started writing books and lecturing. uh, And I picked up one of his books. That was the first book I picked up in college. He said an education is uh, something that makes you an individual. It teaches you how to live and and how to die. He takes a a very broad perspective, but that feels a bit better to me. And so I'm not going to give you a a great one-liner for education here, uh, but I can tell you what I think the purpose of school is. And uh, school in its sort of reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, very basic elementary level skills has been around for a long time, you know, in most societies, even though it was mostly for just for boys, mostly attached to religion. And uh, <laughs> it was not always a very fun thing. And then about a hundred years ago, when we decided that child labor was morally reprehensible, which is a great development, uh, we said, all right, what are we going to do with all the kids now? And I think that is when this, I mean, that is when our system of middle and high schools uh, were was really developed. It was really just about 100 years ago when most kids started going to full-time K through 12 school. And I think we created a lot of work. I mean, literally make work for these kids. Uh, and to some extent, this work is important to help prepare them for more knowledge, uh, you know, knowledge work type stuff in our economy. But to another large extent, it's not that important, and kids can detect that. They can detect that school is just sort of a holding chamber, and it serves a very important function as a sort of uh, collectively funded childcare service. And that's something we've seen in the pandemic. Uh, do you worry, Jeff, about you know this entire cohort of kids who is being remote schooled at home now for a few months? Do you worry about them really not gaining? important skills and you know, not becoming functional adults because they don't go to school for half a year. Uh, because I think that most people are much more worried about like who's going to watch my kid when I try to go to work or when I'm trying to get work done at home. And so that should tell us a lot about one of the fundamental reasons that school exists. And that's not the same thing as education. Yeah. Yeah. What, well said. And it, and it is such an issue. I mean, I, I feel it personally, even though I'm somebody, my wife and I, who we have a lot of flexibility with our schedule. We are able to spend a lot of time with our kids um, outside of school and, and um, uh, you know, really um, interact with them in, in meaningful ways. But even for us, I mean, if, if we didn't have someplace to, to, to basically send them day in and day out, that's challenging in the, in the context of, of work and, and, and of the economy that, that we live in, um, which, of course, you know, is why school uh, as it exists right now, p- persists. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, to the extent you're going to rethink school 
substantially really transform it, you really have to rethink work um, as well. Yeah, that's that. right. So now, and I'll, I'll relate that into a, a point that you make um, around schooling um, throughout the the book that um, you know schooling tends to be particularly as you advance a, a form of job sig- signaling, basically you know showing employers that you're going to be capable of being employed and being a productive member of their organization and of the economy, um, which leads me to the the natural question, which you do uh, wrestle with um, in in the book, and I know is on a lot of people's minds right now, particularly a lot of parents' minds, and that's that's the value of college, um, you know, this level of education, uh, level of schooling that, um, you know, is, is eating up a substantial portion of, <laughs> of savings uh, uh, or, or debt for, for many people. What's, what's your take on, on the value of college uh, in, in general and, and, and at this point in history? Great question. I, I attack the issue of college from two different perspectives in the book. Initially, I just say, okay, here's how these alternatively educated kids, whether home educated or at an alternative school, here's how they get into college. Here's how well they do in college. Here's what the research says. And the research says they do just as fine, not really better or worse than other kids from similar backgrounds. And so that's the sort of boring, reassuring part of the book. Your kid will turn out fine in terms of college. But then I revisit the question of college later and say, so what we really have here is a secular religion. We have this thing that we've all chosen to believe in is as a sort of rite of passage, as a, an economic gateway, especially for young people uh, who will be the first to ever go to college in their families. And we've all agreed that college is just wonderful, both for for making more money, and then also for these sort of enlightenment reasons or developing a life of the mind. And so I bounce back and forth between the economic return on investment argument, and then also the how do you develop a, a life of the mind? How do you become a real critical thinker? Um, and, and so I don't try to say that college is right for everyone or wrong for everyone. I personally had a very enlightening experience in college, I pretty much discovered what I want to do with my life, and I'm continuing to do it today. I went to a great value public university, and I graduated with no debt. I pretty much had the ideal college experience. But uh, I lean on a couple books that were recently published that have done a really good job of analyzing this. And one of them is The Case Against Education by the economist Brian Kaplan. And he has done a, a deeper dive than anyone I'm familiar with into the idea of, of what is the return on investment, just in very narrow financial terms for young people going to college today in the United States. And for some, it's definitely a great investment and a great payoff. And it's the kids who you kind of expect uh, to do really well in college in the first place. Like they, they've they gravitated towards academics in uh, for a long time. They, they can see themselves thriving in the college campus environment. But for all these other kids, the ones who are more likely to go to college for the wrong reasons, probably not finish their degree, but still leave with this, this student loan debt that they can't even discharge in bankruptcy, that is a, a truly bad and perhaps negative economic investment to make right there. So try to balance those arguments with the, the arguments about, well, there, where else is someone ages 18 to 22 going to learn to think really critically? Where are they going to be with a group of peers who are going to challenge them? And these, these adults, these professors who are going to make them think perhaps for the first time in their life, that's a really important thing too. And I end up saying, Listen, the ideal college student is the one who is making a highly informed 
choice uh, and is very intrinsically motivated to go to college. They're not just following the tidal wave of anxious, uh, you know, 18-year-olds and their even more anxious parents who are saying college is the only way to succeed as an adult. You have to go. You have to go right now, even if you're not sure why you're going, even if you're academically burnt out after, you know, these intensive years of college prep. Uh, just the simple fact that we will let these burnt out teenagers go straight into college and take on student loan debt at age 18 when a comparable amount of debt on their personal credit cards would be seen as obscene. That, that in itself is an obscene thing that we are doing today. And so I try to, to put the, pump the brakes a little bit and say, here are the really important things to think about uh, before marching straight forward into college. Mm, yeah. Well, it definitely, definitely made me, um, well, I've already been thinking, uh, but made me think more deeply than ever before about um, what college does or, or does not look like uh, for, for my kids. Um, you know, they may be the types I think that, uh, that it'll suit well, but, um, but I'm, op- I'm open to whatever uh, seems to be the right path once they get there. Now, to, to kind of cap off the book, or at least I saw it as sort of uh, capping off the book, um, you end with talking about uh, the, the need for connection, um, basically, and uh, just how that, that seems to be just so deep in uh, what's, what's going to be beneficial to kids, uh, to their education, to their learning. And, and of course, my thought was that that sort of like carries on into adulthood. People so, so much want that sense of uh, connection uh, that's, that's going to help them to continue on and, and be productive, lifelong learners. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, why that focus in on, on, on connection uh, towards the end of the book and, and, and why that's an important and, and how you think about all of this? I agree. You say that connection as a young person really carries over into your sense of connection as an adult. And fundamentally, you know, what the period of formal education is, is quite short within a person's life. And so we want to set them up for success as adults. That's a given. Uh, so what does connection mean? It, it means a lot of different things to different people. I didn't even use that word. I didn't have it in my lexicon until I started working at this summer camp around age 23 called Not Back to School Camp, which is a summer camp that that still runs today, which is for teenage homeschoolers and unschoolers. They come from all across North America. And they had these, these rituals, uh, these things called check-ins where we would sit in circles and just talk about our, our feelings each day. And I, I came from uh, a family culture and a work culture that we didn't talk about feelings like that. It's like we talk about what needs to be done and, and how we're going to do it. Uh, there was also these uh, activities, which I informally called hippie bonding activities at the summer camp. And uh, it led these teenagers to say, wow, after going to just one week, if not back to school camp, I felt so connected and so I thought, what does that even mean? What does that word connection mean? And what helped unlock the answer for me was reading the book Lost Connections by Johan Hari, which is a New York Times bestselling book. And he talks about many different flavors of connection. And those include connection to meaningful work and meaningful values, to other people, connection to status and respect, to the natural world, and connection to a hopeful or secure future. So this is all fairly abstract stuff. And really, we're talking about the the higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. But this is the really important stuff in life. And what I try to argue, and the reason that this is in the last chapter, is because it really ties together everything that's lacking from so many kids' uh, school experiences. They don't feel like they're doing work that's meaningful. They don't feel like they have uh, a 
significant opportunity to make interpersonal connections because it's so constrained by the, the school schedule. Uh, there's not much access to the natural world. And then thinking about having a hopeful or secure future or feeling status and respect, those are both questionable things. For kids who are in, in great school communities where they really have a sense of belonging, yeah, maybe they definitely have that. But you know, I went to a, a well-funded uh, public school in Bakersfield, California, and feeling a sense of status or respect, it was, ugh, that, that, that was not often part of my reality as a student in one of the, the good schools in my school district. And so these are just the, the big level things that I think we need to give kids a positive taste for these, these connections uh, because these are such formative years. And if we accustom kids to feeling like nothing really matters, uh, the work I do is not going to be seen by anyone. No one will care about it. I'm not really able to form genuine uh, friendships with other people. That's that's just a bad thing to put a young person through and to condition them for their, you know, how they're going to think about life as an adult. And so, yeah, it's still a messy concept connection. I still don't have a good one-liner for you, Jeff, but I know that it's a vitally important thing. And it's something that teenagers, especially their antennae are finely tuned to find the people and places where they will feel this sense of connection. Well, I just thought it was uh, such a, a wise uh, observation and, uh, and and your discussion around it is um, uh, just caused me to reflect a lot. And I know with my own kids, I mean, I can tell that, you know, that the sense of connection that they get from the better aspects of their own schooling, I mean, that's what they really value. Uh, yeah. You know, that's what keeps them motivated about school at all. I mean, it's really not the, the subject matter so much or, you know, the idea that they're progressing through grades or that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's that peer base, uh, and, uh, and the connections they feel to the teachers and as a result, even into the community, um, uh, because of that. So it's a very, very powerful thing. So I appreciate your making that a focus of one of the chapters. Now we've kind of come to the, the, the end of the book. I will say to all listeners, you know, regardless of whether you're considering, you know, unconventional alternative forms of schooling, there's so much to be gotten out of this book. Um, and I'll say that personally, I've you do such a great job of of citing other literature, referencing uh, other books, uh, many of which I've read, many of which I haven't, and I'm definitely going to be going down the rabbit hole of uh, you know following yes. some of your research to the source because I want to read all of this stuff that I, that I haven't read and reread some things. So I'll tell listeners that it's just an incredibly valuable resource just for that, and you do a good job with the notes and make it very easy to to kind of do that follow on if people want to. Now I want to wrap up the way that we uh, usually wrap up here on leading learning. We have a, a question that we ask of all of our guests. And, and, and in your case, I don't know if it's a loaded question or it's a beautiful question, or I don't know exactly how this question works with you just because of who you are and what you've done, but it's um, to, to tell us what's the most powerful learning experience you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your, your own formal education. So I grew up going to this wilderness summer camp called Deer Crossing Camp. It's near Lake Tahoe in California. And in college and for a few years after college, I went back to work as an instructor and the assistant director of this camp. And there's a lot of outdoor activities. There's also backpacking trips. And I got to go on a lot of the, the most advanced backpacking trips that were offered. And this backpacking trip was called the Ascent. And on the Ascent trip, um, the usually teenage uh, members of the trip, anywhere between three and eight of them, they would plan the entire backpacking trip. 
And that means the route, the itinerary, um, the food, everything. And then myself and one other instructor would follow this group through the woods as their their shadows, so to speak. We were their insurance policies. And so if something really bad happened, we were there. But otherwise, we were under strict instructions not to interact with them. So I went on one of these ascent trips as an instructor. And the group got us up at 5 a.m., dragged us through Manzanita bushes, up a mountain, down the other side uh, to the final resting spot, a lake, a high elevation lake. It was The sun was going down. It was getting cold. They were exploding their backpacks and getting ready to make their mac and cheese dinner. And they were saying, okay, who's got the mac and cheese? I got the mac and cheese. Who's got this, the cooking stove? I have the stove. Who's got the fuel right over here? Who's got the pot? Who has the cooking pot? <laughs> and they're all looking at each other and they realize that in their haste to get out the door, they had not accounted for their the cooking pot. So they had no way to cook their macaroni and cheese dinner. They look mm-hmm. over at me. I'm in my sleeping bag already cooking my own little thing of mac and cheese on my personal equipment. And the, in, with, you know, the hangdog faces say, Blake, when you're done, is there any chance we could borrow your cooking pot? And I looked at them and I said, I'm sorry, this is the ascent. No. And they ate cliff bars for dinner. It was their backpacking trip. It was supposed to be like, uh, we, the instructors were not there. And that is a moment that has stuck with me for a long time because did these kids uh, have momentary discomfort? Yes, undoubtedly. Did they actually go hungry? No. Will any of them ever forget to bring a cooking pot when they go backpacking again? No way. That was a huge learning experience for them. And that made that a tremendous learning experience for me. And I ended up designing the way that I, I lead international travel programs for teenagers around that concept of the ascent trip of like, this is your trip. I'm here to support it. But fundamentally, you are running the show. And I'm here as your insurance policy. I'm going to make sure you feel safe. I'm going to be your friend, but I'm not going to fix every problem for you. And so I'm really uh, indebted to that summer camp, Deer Crossing, and uh, and those wonderful ascent trips. Wow. I, lo- I love that story. That's some tough, tough learning love there. I was going to say, yes, those kids, they'll not only remember a pot, they'll definitely remember that experience for the rest of their lives. And I have to say, um, you've sort of inspired me with that story. We, we have traditionally done a lot of international travel as a family. Of course, it's a little hard right now, but hopefully we get back to that at some point. I'm wondering about my kids might be cursing you because I might try something like that. <laughs> my kids at some point. Uh, so thanks. Thanks for that inspiration. Thanks for this fantastic uh, conversation. Blake, if, if listeners want to learn more about you, find out more about uh, your work, maybe even connect with you, uh, what, where, do the, where should they go for that? All of the above can happen at blakebowles.com. That's B-O-L-E-S. Great. Well, fantastic. Blake, thanks so much for being a guest on the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks for asking wonderful questions, Jeff. That concludes the interview with Blake Bowles. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 248. And the show notes will include the reflection questions. What types of questions should we be raising about our traditional approach to adult lifelong learning? How might we radically rethink our approach? And when you check out the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. If you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. 
We would also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but even more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do follow us and help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.